So there were a couple of sociologists by the last names of Froze and Bader commissioned to sort of categorize Americans' belief in God. And after much study and after much collection of data, they kind of categorized the Americans' basic belief in God into four basic categories. One of these is the authoritative God. This might be sort of the closest, obviously, with some missing pieces about true biblical understanding of who God is. Uh, It's like a father engaged as a positive force and a judge of the behaviors of humankind. And uh, as so doing, he still is a positive force uh, in in our world. Uh, But it still falls way short of the biblical record of exactly an understanding of who God is. The benevolent God has some truth, of course, in it as well. Is a mainly a force for good in the world who answers the prayers of individuals but com- and comforts the suffering. Obviously, there is definite truth in that, but taken as that alone, that is missing many, many pieces of the puzzle of who God is. And in fact, you can hear a, a kind of a hint of God is almost like a, a butler waiting at the ready uh, to answer prayers. Some have a belief that God is a critical God, what these two sociologists would categorize as a critical God, less likely to be concerned with those moments of the lives of individuals, and he is ready to mete out judgment and punishment in the next life. The distant God. God is a cosmic force. This is almost uh, very similar to what's known in sort of uh, theological terms as deism. God is a cosmic force that sets the laws of nature in motion, but does not get involved in the day-to-day events and moments. All of those uh, definitions, some fall, fall short, some fall way short and are flat out wrong. Uh, but this is how they categorize the basic beliefs of Americans in God. And really what it is, is there's far from truth in that, but what it does is it illustrates what a large a topic we're going to chew on today. How can we, in one sermon, paint a picture of who God is? Well, we're not going to do that. We're not going to paint a picture of the entirety of who God is. And really, this is a great example of exactly this sermon series, foundations, great themes, great doctrines of Scripture. As I mentioned last week, one of the things that we're going to do, which is really neat and different about this sermon series is that the sermon series is going to be a dipping of our toe into one of these great themes or great doctrines of Scripture, and then we're going to provide supplemental material each week that if you want to, if you choose to, you can go dig in at a deeper level. I believe this is extremely important stuff for all believers to understand and have a basic understanding of the basic truths, doctrines, themes of Scripture, but we know that some will really want to dig even deeper into those things, deeper into those theologies, And some uh, really have a good understanding or a a, a good grasp, sort of at more of a dipping of your toe in level. So what we want to do is we want to provide you some supplemental materials that would encourage everyone to go and check out and read more beyond what we can possibly cover on a Sunday morning. The way we're going to do that very practically, and you'll see uh, the supplemental material from this last week that's up there already, um, is on our sermon page, on the messages page of our website, you will see in the description of that message, of the audio of the message, you will see a downloadable document that you can dig into and read more. And in fact, there's some links to some further study within that document. So we're going to do that and develop that even more as the weeks carry along. So we think about how in the world can we possibly plumb the depths of who God is? 
in one morning, in one sermon. We won't do that. But we will look here at Exodus chapter 4 in one of these great passages in which God uh, comes and he relates himself to the people of Israel through the person of Moses. And what we're going to look at today, in fact, is a little few bits and pieces of the truths of who God is, but we're also going to kind of camp out on what we will say are some of the attributes of God. We're not going to exhaust the attributes of God, whether they be what's known as the incommunicable attributes of God. Those are those things that we don't share greatly with God. There are some crossover in these things, but for a rule, as a basic understanding, we don't share these characteristics or these attributes with God. And then we're also going to talk about, which is the reason we're starting there, is because even in this passage of Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7, God shows and reveals to Moses and emphasizes some of what we might call his communicable attributes. Some of those things that even though he understands them and has them and possesses them perfectly, he in some way shares those things with mankind. Now, as you'll see, as any term might be, it is not a perfect terminology. There is not a perfect categorization through these things, but you'll see as we dive into those. And so we're going to focus on some of some top-level understandings of who God is and then really focus as this passage lends itself to, to some of those attributes of God. And then, of course, we want to challenge you, encourage you to go as we post the sermon audio and then later in the week the supplemental material to go to our website. We'll have the links in social media as well so that you can take a look and study to a greater degree. But Exodus chapter 34 gives us this setting of of Moses has destroyed the stone tablets. Remember, God has called him to Mount Sinai, and this is a a picture here. I love this old great black and white picture, Um, and it's in the midst of Horeb. Sometimes you see these two understandings, these two words used interchangeably in the Bible. And really, Horeb speaks almost more practical or, or, or more acutely to the whole area known as the wilderness around it than Mount Sinai in proper. But God appeared unto Moses as the people were camped at the base and gave him the Ten Commandments. He, he, he returned from the mountain and saw that they were worshiping an idol, broke the tablets. And so we see this setting again that here in the midst of these, the context of these several chapters around, God is giving those commandments Again, in the midst of it, God communicates and relates to himself through Moses who he is. And by no means does this plumb the depth of who God is, but this is a wonderful passage that speaks, and God's speaking himself of who he is. And so it says in verse 5 of chapter 34 of Exodus, it says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there. That alone, as we'll look at, is, is an amazing thought. The limitless God descending in a cloud and standing with Moses. And he, that is God himself, proclaimed the name of the Lord, his own name, Yahweh. Whenever you see capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the great I am, as you'll see, as it's the title of our message today. And proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, again he says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. Here we get into some of these communicable attributes of God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, speaking of that justice of God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. Again, how do you plumb the depths of who God is? You can't possibly do it but God gives, him, gives to Moses a great picture of who he is. You could look to the names of God. 
You can look to the characteristics of God, the attributes as we'll do today. But God is, God is enabled. God is far and wide. God is far greater than we could ever do and plumb the depths of who he is. But yet he communicates unto us. And so we see the great I am. God, the great I am, is the one who is eternal, present, gracious, and he is just. Lord God, as we come to you this morning, it is impossible with the finite mind of a human being to understand the complexities and the depth of who you are as the infinite God. But God, we stand in awe not only of who you are, but that you would, you would appear to us. Lord, you would make yourself known unto us. Lord, that you'd create us and we bear your image. God, I pray that we would come to a greater understanding, not only of who you are, but some of these great themes and truths of the very wisdom and the very truth of who you are as you revealed to us in your word. And so then we continue to build upon and strengthen that foundation of our faith, Lord, as we go out into our world and take the great truth of the good news of the gospel. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So the very first thing is we're going to see God is the one who is eternal. The Lord, as you'll see in many of your translations there, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the great I am, the eternally existent one. that great name of God. In fact, we see in Exodus chapter 33, or Exodus chapter 3, you can stay in 34 if you like, or you can flip over to 3 with me as well. We know this incredible encounter of Moses as he's in the wilderness, and God appears to him in the midst of the burning bush, just knocks his socks off, and and, and Moses is amazed, and this is how God calls. But Moses says to him in verse 11 of chapter 3, and Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And so God said to him, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent them. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What is his name? What shall I say? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. Almost if you could do sort of grammatical gymnastics, it would be simply his name is B. I exist. I exist. I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What a great statement. Uh, of just he is the fact that he is the eternally existent one. He is the one who just is. He is the one who just exists. There is no greater statement, of course, he gives it of himself, of who he is and the depths of who he is, that he is infinite and we are finite than to say, I am. I am the eternally existent one. So the very first thing that we're going to see, very principle of who God is, is how he exists. He reveals himself in the Trinity. Now, we know, again, this is a sermon in and of itself. This is a series of sermons in and of themselves. But we're going to add this material, give this to you supplementally online. But I love this definition here by Wayne Grudem, again, that we have drawn from. And we're going to draw from the course of this sermon series along with others. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. Again, how do you understand an infinite concept with a finite mind, yet it is affirmed 
by Scripture. No, we don't see the word Trinity in Scripture. That is a term uh, that has been given to a great truth that you see affirmed in many places in Scripture, whether it be the confirmation of Jesus Christ, whether it be prayer in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, whether it be claims in places like Hebrews chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 1 of the deity of Christ, we see this throughout Scripture. That God is eternally existent as three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, and there is one God. So we see that he says he's the Lord. And the other thing that's just understood here is the Bible just assumes God. You see, the Bible doesn't begin in Genesis chapter 1 with trying to give proofs for God, although we believe that's a very important thing to study. That's one facet of what's known as apologetics, not apologizing for our faith, uh, meek and mild and sheepishly, but it means that we're defending our faith. That's one of the, of course, bedrocks of what we do. But the Bible just assumes and starts with the understanding that there is God. And in fact, and when you see in Romans chapter 8, or excuse me, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, we see that this is one of the understandings that's given in Scripture for why no one on the face of the earth is without excuse for not seeking God. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from all heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Now, this is not the, the worldly understanding of this sort of impatient, capricious wrath of God that is ready out there to meet judgment on people and, and shoot lightning bolts from heaven. But this means that a holy God, we cannot understand holiness because even though we've been made holy and righteous in Jesus Christ, we are ones who have lived in sin. We don't understand a holy God fully removed and his hatred, not for the person, but for sin. But it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. So it says we have an innate uh, understanding of who God is, and it's just part of who we are. Again, from a biblical perspective, we are image bearers of God, so it's part of who we are. That's why it says it's manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. Also, he says this, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, meaning it takes a lot of unbelief. It takes a lot of personal will to say, I don't want to answer to anybody. I don't want to be ultimately answerable to any being, any person, the force of the universe, to see the incredible complexity of our nature, the incredible, incredible complexity of the human body, and say, that just happened by chance. It takes a major uh, uh, will of repression to repress that and to look out upon all that we see and say, there is no God. For since the creation of the world, his individual attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and the Godhead, the Godhead, the Trinity, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him, speaking of humanity as a whole. Although they did not know God, they did not glorify him, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man and birds, four-footed animals, and creeping things. Speaking of that idolatry, when we, when we leave the truth of the infinite God, we naturally gravitate in towards idolatry. So the Bible simply assumes that there is God. 
But we think about just in part and piece and parcel here of a little bit of what we would call apologetics, defending of the faith of the existence of God. Here's three of, of several of the traditional arguments. I'll just give you a sample of three of those. Right now, the cosmological argument, you see that reflected in the passage we just read. It's simply everything has a cause. Everything has a cause. The universe is not different. That's a very scaled down understanding for the point of the sermon today here, and you can dig into greater depth, but it says when we look at anything else in our universe, we, we don't look at it and say, that just happened. When we look at a watch, uh, we don't just say, gosh, that watch must have happened because of, uh, of just random chance. We don't look at an airplane and say, that just happened because a tornado hit a, a junkyard. So when we look at anything else, we say, look at the complexity of our world. Everything has a cause. Everything has an original cause, so it must be with the, uh, with, with the earth. And really, that kind of fades in and more properly into the teleological argument, which is the universe appears to be designed. It appears to be designed, therefore it must be designed. Again, this is a very simple understanding, statement form of these things that you can do much greater research on. Moral, again, and you see that reflected as well in Romans chapter 1, which we just read. Our sense of right and wrong must come from somewhere. Our sense of right and wrong must come from somewhere. If we were just here by, uh, as a matter of time plus matter plus chance, where do we have this sort of common sense as flawed as it might be in some, as different as it may be on certain perspectives and certain issues? Where it, do we have this sort of commonality of morality as believers? Where does this come from? So again, very scaled down version of those things, and we can add more to those at, at a later time. But as we see here as well, not only do we see God is the eternally existent one, we see that uh, kind of hinted at in that statement of, uh, of the Lord. Not only do we see that the Bible assumes God, but we also understand some of his attributes. One section of those things are called his incommunicable attributes. I know it's a big, thick word, but it simply means those things that we don't share to a great degree with God. One of those things is independence. God does not need creation. Yet we glorify him and we bring him joy. You might just write down this reference. We're not, going to put the ver- we're not going to put the verses on the screen for you today, but write down this reference and you can go back and take a look at these. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who is called God is, or everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. So yes, we were created, but we bring glory. God does not need us, but we bring him glory. By the way, if you want to write down a few little notes and a few little words here and there, great. But we will have the full notes online for you too, so you don't have to feel like you've got to scramble as much as you normally do. Immutability, which means God is unchanging. God is unchanging in his purposes. His being, his purpose and promises, yet acts freely, yet acts and feels differently in response to different situations. When we think about throughout this whole sermon series, what are these great themes and why do they matter to me? We almost hate to mention that last part because I think it kind of fits in and it's too easily flows into our human nature. And really, in fact, some problems and issues in church culture where we have church consumerism, where we think it matters based upon what does it matter to me. This stuff matters simply because it is the eternal truth of God. However, God knows that this stuff also matters to your daily life. You think about that. God is unchanging. He is immutable. Psalms 102.27 says this, but you are the same 
the writer of the Psalms reflecting and affirming these things to God. But you are the same and your years have no end. You think about the person who loves you more than any other person in this world, whether it be a spouse, whether it be your mother, your father, whoever it might be, a loved one. You think about that person who loves you more than anyone else and will give, give for you sacrificially. That person is still not a rock. That person is a rock in your life, but that person is not the solid rock because they, like you, are a human being. And they, like you, at times, as wonderful as they may be, and as much as they love you, there will be a time in which they will fail you. But God, God is the rock. It says, Charles Kingsley has this great quote. He says, in all of our world, all but God, all but God is changing day by day. All but God is changing day by day. You see, folks, God is completely, infinitely, God is completely, infinitely, and absolutely worthy of your trust. He is immutable. He is unchanging. And so he is infinitely, completely, and absolutely worthy of all of your trust. Not only is he immutable, but it speaks of his eternity as well. God has no beginning, end, and he sees all of time with equal vividness. Psalms 90 verse 2 says this, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Not only that, and again, this doesn't plumb the depths of even his incommunicable attributes, but we're going to share one more, his omnipresence. God does not have size, but he is present at every point in space, yet acts differently in, in different places. Psalms 139, 7 through 8 says this, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? It's a rhetorical question as the psalmist writes it. And the answer, the answer to that question is nowhere. So again, when we think about just this small selection of the attributes of God, his independence, his unchanging nature known as his immutability, his eternity, and his omnipresence, we again have to think about what we just showed you on the screen. God is completely infinitely and absolutely worthy of your trust. He is the only rock in your life. As much of a rock as that mother, that father, that spouse, that loved one is, and we know that we have those great rocks in our life, we know that they are just like us. They're a finite being with failings. They will fail us at times. God is infinitely worthy of your trust. How do we trust him? How do we know what he says for us to trust? He has given us his word right here. It is impossible to dig into his word. As we talked about last week, it is impossible to dig into his word and dwell upon his word and not change and not change for the positive. It is impossible to spend time with God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the Son, Jesus Christ, through his word and not change and not become more like Christ. So we see the one who is eternal. Secondly, we see in the latter part of verse 5, the one who is personal and present with us, the one who is personal. So not only is he eternal, but he is not a God up there that, that we can know, in no way attain, that we can in no way know, but he is a knowable God. He has made himself knowable to us, and he models this here in this passage here with, uh, with Moses. And now the Lord descended, the Lord descended, in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. He descended. You think about not only does it not only did he descend here with Moses 
and model for the fact that he is not a God who is aloof and distant, but he is a present and personal God with us. Not only did he model it here with Moses and again kind of set this as a a pattern of his nature, but we see the greatest descending of God, if you will, from the person, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. As he descended from heaven and he came in, in, in such a humble manner, there lying in a manger, one day to go to the cross. God descended. As he descended here with Moses, he descended unto us, to the person of God the Son, Jesus Christ, so that he might die. He might redeem us from our sin. So that he descended, and he stood there with him. He stood there with him, a God, again, this God who is personal and present, and the God who is there, and he stands with us, and he knows us in the midst of our struggles and pain in life. Again, as we think about why does this matter that a God is personal unto us, he knows the world in which we live. You see, I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. It says, pain insists upon being intended to. God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. You see, he is personal unto us, and because he comes unto us, he understands the difficulties of our life. It says he descended, stood there with Moses, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. You think about the daunting task that stood before Moses of leading the people, although he would not be able to enter the promised land, leading the people to the point there where they would enter the promised land. Could you imagine the challenges leading them from captivity in Egypt and now leading them in the midst of their grumbling and complaining, leading them to the precipice of the promised land? And it says as he did, he proclaimed the name of the Lord. It's really interesting that it says that God, who is the Lord, proclaimed the name of the Lord. And I really think it was, it was a reminder of not only of his majesty, but a reminder in very vivid and palpable form unto Moses that I am, that I am that I am that appeared unto Moses in Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush, led him all the way through his freeing of the slaves from Egypt and is leading him now. He's reminding him, the I am that I am is with you, that comfort and that courage that Moses needed. So the one who is eternal, the one who is personal, the one who is gracious. I love how not only does God descend and stand there with Moses, not only is he present with Moses, but he reminds him of his character. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, and by by no means clearing the guilty. Verse 6 shows us again that God is the one who is gracious. And I love this this sort of piling up of words here we see at the beginning of verse 6. And the Lord passed before him, it says, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. You see this repetition for emphasis. I think it's, again, a continuing of what we saw here in verse 5, that that Moses is feeling the pain. He's feeling the pressure of this situation that he's in. And God wants to remind him, you are not doing this on your own. I, the great I am, go before you. You are in the midst of my plans. I'm not tagged on to the ends of yours. And also the Lord, the Lord passed before him. We see this, in fact, 
throughout Scripture, and we see this through extra-biblical literature, what is known as the endearment phenomenon, this repetition of that name of the Lord, giving him his personal name. That's what we have to remember, that the Lord is a stand-in, L-O-R-D in all caps, is a stand-in for that personal name of God, Yahweh, Yahweh. And God is, is endearing himself to Moses. Not only is he giving him comfort and courage in the midst of this daunting task, but he is, he is doing it in such a way that he is, he is saying, your dearest Yahweh, your dearest Yahweh. As, we, as he does that, he reminds us that, that he is infinite and mighty. There is no way to measure who he is, plumb the depths of who he is. It tells us in Isaiah that he measures the span of the stars with the span of his hands. He scoops out the oceans with the palm of his hand. God is limitless, yet he comes to us and he is gracious unto us. And so we see here some of these reflected of some of what we might call his communicable attributes. Some of those things we looked at before that he does not share with us. Some of these things he shares in part with us, meaning the fact that we can be merciful. We can be gracious. We can be long-suffering. Although by no means do we have it in spades. Do we have it in perfection as he does. But the very first thing he says of one of these communicable attributes, by no means an exhaustive list of these. But here are a few that are listed in this passage. Mercy. It says that God is merciful. Mercy is God withholding what we truly deserve. Genesis 9-11, after again the flooding of the earth, when God cleared out the earth because there was such sin in the land, Genesis 9-11, one of the very first great emphases of his mercy, he says, thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again there shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God was holding from then on what mankind truly deserved. So he's merciful, but he's also sort of the other side of the coin. He is gracious. Grace is God's kindness towards those who deserve punishment. Now, here's the thing, the biblical truth, which is not popular in our world today. You know, we love to think of ourselves as ones who just kind of make mistakes or we're misled, that sort of thing. We know that obviously we are both of those things, misled and we make mistakes. But the Bible speaks of a deeper-seated truth, and that is sin and rebellion, that we rebel against the good God when we miss the mark of his calling and his character and what he's called of us to do, and it's called sin. And far from it just being that we're just kind of wandering along the way and we're just kind of wandering away from God and God is saying, oh, hey, you know, this sort of thing. When we look at Romans chapter 5, it's a picture, it says that we're at enmity with God because of our sin. Now, God is a wonder, as, as we're reflecting upon here, God is a gracious God, but he's also a just God, as we'll look at in just a few moments. God is a gracious God, and he is a just God. What we deserve, what we deserve is, is punishment for sin. But God, in his mercy, withholds from us what we deserve, and more than that, he gives us his grace God's grace is kindness towards those who deserve punishment. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace you were saved. Grace you were saved. You have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Sometimes we have this idea as though we're almost deserving of this salvation. It's just mainly upon kind of our terms when we come around to it, Right? But we're always really deserving of it because what does the world tell us? The world tells us that people are basically good. 
And that's not at all what the Bible says. The heart of man, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is wicked and evil above all things. But because of God's grace, we're not saved through what we do on our own. We're not saved by our own works. We're not saved by the fact that we're basically a good person that's a little bit misled. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, but yet God, because of his grace, giving us what we do not deserve, he has saved us. So God is merciful and gracious. He's also long-suffering. I love that old word in that translation. Some of your translations might say patience, but it speaks of God who is patient. His patience is withholding punishment of those who sin, of course, over a lengthy period. That's kind of a clunky definition, but what it speaks to is all of us, is all of us. God is patient with us, and not only when we come to faith in Christ, but he's patient, or not only before we come into faith in Christ, but even when we come into faith in Christ. We know that if we come to faith in Christ, that we will continue to grow in Christ like this. Romans 8, 29 tells us those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So we know that is our destiny. That is who we are becoming if we are saved. But there will be times in which we slip into sin. There will be times where we do sin. But God is patient with us, patient with us. And he's willing to forgive again and again. So not only do we see a handful of these uh, communicable attributes here given in this passage of mercy and grace and long-suffering, but he also speaks of abounding in goodness. His goodness is that all that God does, all that God does is worthy of approval, and he is the final standard of all goodness. I just put it as an exact quote here from Grudem. I love how he puts that. All that God does is worthy of approval, and he is the final standard of all goodness. He is reliable, he is loyal, and he is completely faithful to you. So he says all goodness and truth, all goodness and truth. Not only that, but again, just of this selection of, of some of these attributes, God is truthful, his truthfulness. God always represents things as they really are. <clears throat> all of God's knowledge and the words God's knowledge and words are true, and he is the final standard of that truth. God always represents things as they really are. Again, what a rock. What a rock. And also we see not only is he the one who is personal, the one who is gracious, but he is the one we see in verse 7, the one who is just. It says, keeping mercy mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and treasure. Uh, transgression. So not only does he keep mercy for thousands of people, but for thousands of generations, keeping mercy for thousands. Again, loyalty. Really, in fact, when you see the nuance of the original word there in Hebrew, it's not just love, it's not just mercy, but it's this merciful, loving loyalty, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Iniquity, transgression, sin piles those up, even though there's nuance that all kind of means this saying. It's that literary emphasis. Uh, sin and transgression and iniquity. It's there for emphasis, meaning that God isn't reluctant to forgive, but he lavishly, eagerly forgives us, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting iniquity upon the fathers from generation to generation. God is just. This is really interesting. Does this really mean that me doing nothing of myself can really live out the punishment of my fathers? Now, sometimes there's consequences that happen. Obviously, even if there is forgiveness and we've done nothing in ourselves, we all know, we can all share stories of how those that we love and are close to us, we bear the brunt of consequences. 
But Deuteronomy 24, 6 says this, 16 says this, fathers shall not be put to death for their children's sin or crimes, depending upon the translation you have there. But really what it means there, and really the, the great understanding of this, is that if the children continue in the sins of their fathers, the sins of their parents, they will receive the same punishment. But we have to remember that God is merciful and gracious, and he is perfectly just. He is perfectly just. I love this verse here, Deuteronomy 32, 4, not only speaks of his justice, but as we've talked about throughout the thread of this entire sermon, that he is the rock. Deuteronomy 32, 4, he is the rock. His work is perfect. For all of his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, if you needed a greater emphasis, righteous and upright is he. You see, in the midst of a changing and ever-changing world, midst of an ever-changing world in which quote-unquote truth changes daily, weekly, monthly. And you never know which is what's up and what is down, what's right, what's the latest thing I should be following for a diet, let alone great truth for what it means to live life and have purpose in life. We know that God is the rock. So again, ending just where we started, the great I am is the one who is eternal, present, He is personal, gracious, and he is just. The question comes to you. The ultimate question of application comes to you. Will you trust him with all of your life? Let's pray. Lord God, if we come now to this time of of response for the sermon, I pray most importantly that whoever may be here today that does not know Christ as their Savior, they have not trusted God the Father as their rock, would this be a day that they would do that? And God, as we leave this place, as we reflect upon these great themes of Scripture, these great truths of Scripture, Lord, may they not be something that just sits upon a page as an interesting thought, an interesting turn of theological phrasing, but Lord, may these, uh, these sort of understandings of the great truths of scripture Lord, cause us to 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 cling deeply to them to meditate upon the truths of scripture and lord very palpably and very powerfully work their way into our daily life that whether it be that we're serving you and glorifying you through our daily work at our career glorifying you with our family and with our children glorifying you as we are missionaries out in the mission field that we know we are not twisting in the wind but Lord we are serving the rock you are the rock all your ways are justice with a God of truth and without injustice righteous and upright are you Lord God as we serve you today as we go from this place Lord may we live by that great truth that you are the rock in Christ's name we pray